So why don't we? All those questions were just in that song. Some of you are old enough to remember the royal wedding of Princess Diana and Prince Charles, right? It started off with such a storybook beginning. I mean, it was incredible. It had the horses, had the carriages, had all the royal pomp and circumstance. So how can something that has such a fairy tale beginning end up having such a horror story ending? Why is it that so many couples start off with such amazing, incredible love for one another and in just a short period of time, maybe just even a couple years, all of a sudden they literally hate each other? How does that happen? What went wrong? I want to read an email I received. And again, just so you kind of know, uh, I tell couples that come in for counseling, you will not be an illustration unless you have, I have your permission. So this is one of those that have permission for, but it's an email. It says, Dear Pastor, I don't understand what's happened to my marriage. What seemed to be so right before we got married has turned out very, very wrong. I'm wondering if I've missed God's will. My marriage is not at all what I thought it was going to be. I know everybody has problems, but I thought because I was a Christian that my marriage would be different. Before we got married, we thought we had a lot in common, but it is now very clear that we have very little in common, especially since my spouse doesn't seem to care about growing spiritually like I do. Another thing that bugs me is our love life. Before we got married, we decided to live together to check each other out sexually. Well, that was a big mistake. I've now learned that how someone responds while unmarried is no guarantee at all how they will respond after they're married. Within a year after we got married, my spouse lost all interest in sex. The thrill was replaced by guilt and fear. I feel ripped off, cheated, and the victim of a bait-and-switch scam. It just isn't fair. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm frustrated. I keep wondering if maybe the person that God wanted me to marry is maybe still out there somewhere. I fantasize about other people that I've, excuse me, I fantasize about other people I might have married, and I'm constantly comparing my spouse to others. Maybe... I should just divorce and start searching again. All I'm sure of is this. I'm deeply disappointed in my marriage, and I don't know what to do. Pastor, can you please tell me what went wrong? So what do you tell them? See, unfortunately, these kind of emails are somewhat semi-regularly, and again, a lot of folks are finding themselves in a ton of hurt and a ton of pain. And, and again, the question is, what happened? What happened? And what do we do? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to James chapter 4. And, and uh, if you're a guest, I just want you to know we're incredibly grateful you came. If you came Easter and decided to come back, we're so glad you came back. If you're regular here or a partner with us, super glad that you're here. If you're tuning in online, so thank you so much for tuning in. We're in this series that we started last week called Vows. And last week, uh, celebrating Easter together, uh, we, we talked about how the resurrection power that, that Jesus displayed, that God showed through resurrecting Jesus from the dead that we celebrate, that same power is given to us in our relationships. Like we have that same power that's availed to us that we should be using in our relationships with one another, for those of us who trust and follow Jesus. And so this morning, I want to talk about the conflicts. 
the conflicts that you've been having, which I know could be potentially be very painful for you this morning, but my hope is that we're going to talk about where those come from and, and, again, what are some practical steps that we can take towards healing and reconciliation. James chapter 4, if you've been here long enough, you've probably even heard me talk about this before, but verse 1, here it is. Do you know where fights and arguments come from? And it's real easy when you just point to the person probably sitting right next to you. Yeah, my spouse, right? Or my parents or my kids, right? Unfortunately, James doesn't say that. He says they come from selfish desires that war within you. In other words, I want what I want. You want what you want. See, these competing desires or these competing expectations, when they collide with one another, that's called conflict. And what James tells us is it comes from our selfish desires. And usually, most, most every single relationship, there, there are usually five key areas to every marriage that you will experience some sort of conflict. Not even in marriage, but in, just in relationships. Here are the five key areas. Money. And again, if hopefully when you came in, you received some notes. If you're tuning online, you've got notes so you can download those and follow along with us. But money, sex, in-laws or outlaws, whatever you call them, right? Uh, children and communication. Again, money, Sex, which, by the way, we're going to talk about next week, so make sure you're here for that. Uh, in-laws, children, and communication. I, I, and I, again, please hear me. I don't want to boast. I really don't want to sound prideful in this area. Uh, but Sue and I pretty much have a perfect marriage because we have had conflict in all five of these areas. <laughs> We've even offered to a- offer some extra subjects, you know, like some other things that you can, bat- you can battle over. But see, James tells us, that the battles that we have are not necessarily, the battles that we have with each other don't necessarily come from each other, but the battles that we have with each other come from a war that is going on within us. See, it's so often for us, we want to put that on the other people, but what James says is my battle, I think, is with you, but what James says, it's actually what's going on inside of me. And so James says, because you didn't get what you wanted. It's our, what we talked about last week, it's our selfishness. And again, we talked about this. It it can come from unmet, this is a big one, unmet expectations. Like I expected you to do this, you didn't do it. Even if it's a reasonable expectation, it didn't get met. It leads to hurt, disappointment, anger. You want to know when you're angry what it's from? It's from unmet expectations. And so when I have an expectation you didn't meet, all of a sudden I'm hurt, I'm angry, and now we've got something to talk about. It could come from unresolved or unforgiven issues. It could come from, like we talked about last week, just our differences. Remember we talked about how sometimes we're attracted to those differences at the beginning, and then all of a sudden, over time, they become annoying, right? And, and again, you, you probably see, I think it's part of God's sense of humor that opposites attract and all that kind of stuff. Because structured people can often be drawn to unstructured or spontaneous people. 
Don't you find that interesting? Like all of a sudden you think, oh, I just think that's so awesome that you're just such a free spirit and that you're, you can just be so spontaneous. And then after a while, it's super annoying, right? Or the other way around, like you love because they're so different than you. And they have so much structure and organization to their life. And deed, like you just love that. And over time, you're like, oh, like my heavens, can't you be more like me, right? That's what we're really saying. Have you noticed that shy, quiet, reserved people are often like uh, fascinated by outgoing and loud people? Again, until you're married to them for a while. And again, what do we do? Why do you have to be so loud? Why do you have to, can't you just, right, all of a sudden it was cute and adorable when you were dating. Not so much anymore. Like early risers often marry night owls. People who love to talk often marry people who love to listen, except to you after a while, right? <laughs> those of you, Dave Ramsey talks about this. There are you, those of you that are free spirits and others that are nerds. Like for those of you that love to spend money, unfortunately, most of you are married to tightwads. Yeah, that's Sue and I. Yeah, I'm the tightwad. Some of you that love to cuddle, unfortunately, you're married to some porcupines. Other you, others of you, others of you that are, that that you uh, are uh, always organized and on time. You married people who are flexible, right, <laughs> and uh, tend to be late. But here's the thing: we we got to remember these are just different. Over time, you will see these as character flaws instead of just differences. But when we're reminded that there are differences, and my part is to continue to lovingly and gently, gently talk about these things and talk through it with them. And when we don't do it with gentleness and love, I'm telling you, it leads to war, war three. And so here's my question is, so how then do we deal with this conflict that comes from my selfishness? How do we deal with this? How do we, what are some appropriate steps we need to take? And here's what I'm going to tell you. The gospel, and I'm going to explain that in a minute. The gospel has got to drive our behavior. And so I want you to write this statement down. Here's a statement. You've heard me talk about it. I'll keep talking about it until God takes me home. And here it is. This is just a principle that's true. Belief drives behavior. Knowledge does not. You can know all kinds of stuff, and it doesn't drive your behavior. What you truly believe, so think about your behavior. Then you got to ask yourself, what am I believing that's driving this? I know better, but why do I keep doing this? Because your belief is different than your knowledge. Belief will drive behavior. So think about it. Do I believe that Jesus saved my relationship with God. So we talked about this last week. God and I were separated because of my sin. He's holy and perfect. I'm not. I'm separated. So God, out of his love, sent Jesus down to this earth to die on the cross, to raise from the dead, to prove and validate that he really is the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind. So when I put my trust in Jesus, he reconciles me. So now there's no gap between me and God. He entrusts the Holy Spirit to me. Right? So now we're in relationship with one another. So if, does Jesus save my relationship with God? If I believe that, then I put my trust in him. Okay, If I believe that, then that also drives my behavior in relationships. Because if Jesus saves my relationship with God, he can save your relationship with others. Which is way easier than saving your relationship with God. So the very... One, 
So do you, if you believe that, the very one that saved you from hell and gives you life and life to its fullest and eternal life and reconciles you back to God is there for you to help you understand how you can then reconcile your relationships with other people. This is why I said last week, Christians should be setting the standard for how relationships work if we really believe the gospel. This is why it bothers me so much. Is because when I look statistically at Christians and non-Christians, the, the statistics aren't really any different, which is really an exposing of us. Because if the gospel is true, and I believe that, then it should lead me in every area of every relationship I am in. And so we're going to talk about for the rest of our time, how does the gospel drive our relationships and specifically as we talk about marriage. So if you're single, if you're divorced, if you're married, like whatever, like if you're a teen, whatever it is, these are things that we're going to look at today should drive every relationship that you're in. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in there. And then I just want to give you some practical steps that you can begin to take 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go ahead and jump, uh, excuse me, jump down to verse 14. <laughs> so I, don't, I hope this is super helpful. I have written a whole different message, and then on Wednesday, uh, God really changed it, and this is what I wrote, so I'm super passionate about it, so I hope it uh, makes sense to you this morning. For, verse 14, it says, for Christ's love. My question is, for what? Just think about it. For Christ's love. Which is what? What is Christ's love? Love is not a feeling. Love is action. It's action. So for Christ's love, he's talking about the, so for Christ's love, the sacrificial death that he did on your behalf, think about it. So for Christ's love compels us. It inspires inspires us. It moves us into action because that's love. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he, talking about Jesus, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. In other words, for those of us who have been transformed by the message of Jesus and now call ourselves a follower of Christ, should no longer be selfish. But for him who died for them and was raised again. In other words, you shouldn't live for yourselves, but for him, for, for Jesus, who died for you and raised again. So again, he's saying, hey, Paul's telling us, if you've humbled yourself and you realize you knelt your knee before God, you accepted him, Jesus as your personal savior to wipe away your sins, hear me now loud and clear, your life is no longer your life. If you think Christianity is you're going to live your life and you're going to pray for a little bit of God's blessings and you want a little bit of Jesus when you need him on the side. Like I'll take a, you know, I'll take a, a full size of this and I'll take a little side of Jesus. Like that's not going to work. Like when we come to the cross, I just want you to visualize this. When you come to the cross and you bow your knees, right, when you bow your knee at the cross and you desperately need saving. At this moment, you're making an exchange. I no longer get to live my life. If you want to live your life, don't even accept Jesus. Like this is not a get out of hell free card. 
This is an exchange life. Like, I'm going to choose to follow you, Jesus. It's no longer about Bob. It's all about you. Now I am a total servant to you. Now I'm here to live the life that you desire in me and through me and my spouse and my kids and my staff and this church and my community and my name. Like they should all experience a whole lot more of you and a whole lot less of me. It's an exchange life. Verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, he is a new creation. The old stuff's got to go. The old habits, the old thinking, the old ways, all that stuff's got to go. The new has come. All this is from God who, what's it say? Reconciled us. It means to bring us back into favor to himself through Christ. And he gives us, he says, the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, that God was wooing and drawing and making it available for us to be reconciled back to him because our efforts, all the good works would never do it, Ephesians tells us. We could never earn God's favor, so he sends Christ to reconcile us back to him, look at this, and, count, and not counting men's sins against them. Do you remember what love is, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? I said this last week, 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no records of wrongs. God's love. So what do you think God does? He keeps no records of wrongs. Yeah, that's a hallelujah. You better believe it. He goes on, he says, he has committed to us not only the ministry, but now the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, he says, we are therefore Christ, excuse me, Christ's ambassadors, which means we're his representatives, though God were making his appeal through us. Think about it. We're now his ambassadors. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're an ambassador of the ministry of reconciliation to who? Who are you called to be an ambassador to? To the world, to your neighbors, to your own home. It would be a, such a disconnect for my kids to hear me up here preaching one thing and experiencing something else at home. That's called a hypocrite, right? So all of a sudden, the same thing would be true with my wife. If I'm up here espousing one thing and she's experiencing something totally different, I have zero credibility, and that then gets exposed to the gospel. Like, we're called to be representatives. We're called to be ambassadors. None of us are going to do it perfectly. None of us. But we're called to represent him. And he says, though God were making his appeal through us. And when we talk about living sent as disciples of Christ, we're going to love and live like Jesus. As ambassadors of him, of the ministry of reconciliation. That's why I'm saying we set the standard. We should be setting the standard of how relationships work because Christ's love compels us. He says, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, this is the gospel right there. This is the gospel. This is why the gospel isn't only for you to accept Christ. You've got to preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. Like I've got to be reminded every single day. And the question is, 
Do you believe it? Hear me. Because your belief will drive your behavior. So if the people you're in relationship with are not experiencing the gospel, there's a major disconnect in your belief system. And so when we choose to trust and follow Jesus, I just want you to know what he's entrusted to you as an ambassador. You have been given the ministry and the message of reconciliation. So when you're talking to others, when you're in relationship with others, you carry the weight and the responsibility of reconciling. That's what we carry as believers. We're ambassadors. So when you choose to not reconcile because of your own hurt and pain, and I get it, I really do, but when you choose not to, you're totally throwing out or disregarding the gospel. Everything that God offered you and you so willingly received. And then when other people want and need to experience it, you don't offer it. Why? Because we've chosen instead to just sit in our pain and as James says, be selfish. Just, just real quick, I want you to think about this, and then we're going to get to the quick practical steps. When your spouse, let's just say this, when your spouse hurts you, and, you are, and you, you're not quick to forgive, why? Just, just for yourself. There might be all kinds of different reasons out there. But what causes you to withhold forgiveness and not offer it quickly. Not because they've earned it. Do, do you withhold it until you feel like they're sincere? Do you withhold it until you, they apologize? Do you withhold it until you feel like they really meant it? Like, what's your reasoning? Because, well, yeah, but you know, if they, they never said they were sorry. They never even admitted it. What if they start, and all of a sudden you go down all this reason for your excuse to actually withhold the very thing that Christ offered to you that you never earned or deserved yourself. And so think about it. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ forgave us while you were still sinning against him. He didn't wait for you to get your act together. He didn't wait for you to all of a sudden recognize and be sincere. He did it in advance, which we're called, if we believe the gospel, to do it for others. And please hear me. None of this do I suggest is easy. But it is what we're called to as believers. So let me give you some real practical steps and Try to get you out of here today. Uh, the first one, stop defending your good intentions. Stop defending your good intentions. I was incredibly convicted about this over a few, a few years ago. Uh, actually, Sue really helped me be convicted over this, uh, <laughs> along with the Holy Spirit, because uh, she would challenge me on this, because there would be times when I would do something or say something that would create hurt, and I, I would immediately go to, but Susie, that, that you got to understand, that, that wasn't my intentions. Like, you don't, like, that wasn't my heart for you. And then my thinking is that, man, if you just knew that I had good intentions, all of a sudden you should go, oh, okay, I'm not hurt anymore, right? 
Because it would kill me that something I said or did was actually causing her hurt, and then she'd be really upset, and I'm thinking, but I didn't mean to, right? So what happens? All of a sudden, the focus now is all on me, selfish, right? All on me instead of entering into her pain and seeing whether I meant to or not that she was hurting. And how then could I comfort my wife when all I'm interested in in that moment is defending my goodness, my good intentions? I love these verses, even though they're incredibly convicting. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. So who can understand it? So let me tell you, some of the worst advice I hear people give one another, hey, is just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Yeah, that's a great idea since your heart is wicked. <laughs> right? So that's what scripture says. Again, belief drives behavior. Romans 7, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sin nature. For I have the desires to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. Unfortunately, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Drop down to verse 24. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So apparently, I'm just telling you, so apparently what Scripture teaches, you just go back to it, is that my heart is deceitfully wicked and nothing good in me except Jesus, right? So apart from Christ, there's nothing good in me. So think about this. So if I believe this to be true, then what or who am I defending? If my intentions, my heart, apart from Christ, even though you didn't mean to, if in that moment, I start defending my heart, myself, right? Then all of a sudden, all I'm defending is my pride. All I'm defending is my sin nature at the expense of my wife. Think about how evil that is. Like in that moment, I just want to focus on me and how good, and I'm not so bad. And please don't you know, think I'm that bad. But again, if I truly believe the gospel and what scripture says, I'm actually an enemy of God and nothing good is in me, but Jesus saved me and please save me from this body of death. Like that should drive my conversation. And the only righteousness, the only rightness you have and the only goodness that I have and the only, you know, uh, uh, holiness that I have was what Jesus imputed, what he deposited in me. So think about it. So the only thing good in me comes from Jesus, and he doesn't need to be defended. So what it does is it frees me up to then enter into my spouse's or whoever it is hurt and provide comfort, seek forgiveness, and work towards reconciliation. See, stop defending because it's a dismissal of the gospel. And it's a roadblock to reconciliation. 
The second thing, no throwing stones. No throwing stones. In John chapter 8, you might be familiar, some of you might not be familiar with the context of this passage. There was a, the Pharisees had caught, uh, some people had caught the uh, lady who was in an adulterous relationship, and they kind of brought her before Jesus, really trying to trick him. And, and uh, you know, and this is Jesus' response as they were trying to trick him. He says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be f- the first to throw a stone at her. I want you to remember that, and I want you to listen to this. Jesus is telling us on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, he says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Listen to this. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be, be judged. And you can put, go ahead and put in parentheses, by God. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you, ch- how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And the whole point, what, what Jesus is getting at here, is that we often are so focused on our own hurt and pain. And then out of that, we judge and condemn the people that are hurting us. But what Jesus is saying, hey, listen, how many of you have done it all perfectly? Perfect. None of you. So guess what? You don't get to throw stones. It's easy when when you think, yeah, but she and he did this and he did that. Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. Did you do it all perfectly? No? Okay. So what I need you to do is drop the stones Drop all the other stuff you want to fling and throw. And the same kind of grace that you want when you screw up needs to be offered. Doesn't mean it doesn't need to be talked through and worked through and navigated. It just means no throwing stones. And see, what what Jesus is getting to on 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 the Sermon of the Mount is that you're tempted, we can be tempted to judge others. We can be tempted to judge our spouse. And what Jesus is, is, and is kind of saying it within a sense of humor, he's saying, hey, listen, instead of you trying to focus on the sawdust speck in, in your spouse's eye, let's talk about the telephone pole in your own eye, right? Like, let's look at this big honking. Like, you want to look at that little thing. And again, he's saying, just, just so you know, just, I just want to be crystal clear here. Before you start focusing on the sawdust speck, I just want you to remember, however you choose to judge your spouse right now or whomever, right, whatever relationship we're talking about, you will be judged likewise. So guess what? We start, we start asking, Lord, I want grace I want mercy. Them, condemnation. Me, mercy and grace. God said, doesn't work that way. You want to offer condemnation? You and I will have that conversation. And here's how we navigate this. This is a core value in my family, has been for years. This is also a core value here at Side Life. So if you're going to be a partner with us, you're going to actually be a part of this church and you're going to do relationships with us, 
you need to know this because we'll hold you accountable to it. And here's, here's what, how we call, talk about it. It's called staying curious. We have a high value for relationship here, high value for transparency and vulnerability and being in each other's lives. And so in order for that to happen, we will have conflict. It's just inevitable. There's going to be something I say or something I do or somebody else in your small group or on your serving team or somebody in the parking lot, like whatever. Like you're going to have conflict. And here's what I'm asking. When you have conflict, I want you to stay curious. You say, well, what does that mean? Here it is. There is going to be a gap between what you expect and what you experience. Andy Stanley talked about this years ago and it's had a huge, profound impact on me. He says there's going to be a gap between what you expect and what you experience. I want you to choose to choose trust over suspicion because when there's a gap between here's what I expect of you but here's what I experienced in you, what we naturally do is we inject suspicion in that moment to say, well, I'm sure you did this or I'm sure he meant that. I can't believe it. Like, all of a sudden, we go to all kinds of suspicion and worse case scenarios. And what I'm suggesting, what I believe scripture backs up, is that we want to suggest that you put trust, like, hey, I'm sure you didn't mean to not call me back. However, you didn't. And it hurt. But can you help me understand? Because there could be a very good reason, and I'm just trying to understand. Like, can you help me understand why? Oh, hey, when you did this, when you said this the other day, it really stung. And I, I, really, I don't really believe that that's your desire to do that to me. However, it still hurt. Can you help me understand why you said that? Hey, you said that you were going to do this with the kids, and then you didn't. And that really bothered me. I don't, I don't think you meant to be a, a bad person or a poor father or a poor mother or not keep a, be a person that doesn't keep their word, but it really triggered me. Can you help me understand what happened there. And when we stay curious and we ask questions, it invites the other person into a conversation versus you make statements about them and they immediately get defensive. Why? Because they feel like they're on trial. And so do you want to invite somebody into a conversation with you that's going to lead to healing and reconciliation or is all you want to do is spout your hurt, disappointment, and anger? And put them on trial. Because if that's the case, you just keep, keep using these words. They're beautiful You never, you always, that'll always lead to more hurt. It just is. It's just true. But when you choose to take to God first and you come to them, you say, hey, help me understand. This is what I expected. Whether it's right or wrong, this is what I expected. I don't believe you meant to hurt me. However, it was hurtful. Can you help me understand why? Or what you did. And sometimes, I'm telling you, when you stay, there's been times when I've, I've heard, like, I am so glad that I stayed curious because I was so angry. I just wanted to jump to conclusions. And after I heard the reasoning, I totally get it. Like, I totally get it. And I would have wasted so much emotional energy jumping to the worst conclusions about people. So don't throw stones. Last one, I've <laughs> got to get past this. I'm sorry. Forgive quickly. Forgive quickly. All right. So if we go back to the gospel again, belief drives behavior, and then we remember that all of our sins, think about it, all of your sins were forgiven at the cross. So is there any sin that you've committed that Christ hasn't forgiven you for? Good, we're on the same page. No, okay? So that means there's nothing that you can't offer and extend forgiveness to others for. 
He just offered it in advance out of his great love, and he's forgiven us out of his great love, so we're then compelled, we're called to then forgive others. Matthew 6, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But check this out. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Heed those words. Colossians 3, make allowance for each other's faults. And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. It's not a question. We talked about this last week. You must. It's a command. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which is huge, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. So the gospel compels me, right? It just compels me. If I believe it, the same offer of forgiveness he's offered to me, now I must forgive those who hurt me. Please hear me. That doesn't mean that consequences still don't happen. You don't withhold forgiveness until they're sincere. You don't withhold forgiveness until they ask you. You give forgiveness, even if it's by yourself, with God. God, I choose to cancel their debt, even if they never acknowledge it or ever come back to me. God, I forgive them. They no longer owe me. This is for your benefit. It sets you free. See, when we put our trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, he says he keeps no records of wrongs, and neither should we. We're not going to forget. That's a myth. But we can cancel those debts. Let me give you a key distinction. I know I'm trying to wrap up. Key distinctions. There's a difference between forgiveness and trust. Big difference between forgiveness and trust. You, you must forgive, right? Christ compels us to forgive because he's forgiven us. Forgiveness is not earned. It's freely given because it was freely given to us. So we're now going to freely give it to others. Trust other, is big difference. Trust is earned and has to, be, uh, it has to be earned over time. So you might have lost trust. Like, I'll hear this all the time. But, they, you know, they said they forgave me. Yeah, they did forgive me. They just don't trust you. Well, how can that work? It's very easy. Like you said something or did something that lost trust. I forgave you because Christ called me to forgive you. You no longer owe me anything, but I don't trust you as far as I can spit. That has to be earned over time. So forgive and trust. So how do you do this? Well, oftentimes it's going to happen because both of you probably are different. My wife and I are very different. Sue could potentially hold on to things <laughs> from me. And she just like hold on to it. And I want to, I, she could go days without talking. Like for me, like I want to talk about it now. Like now. Like now, right? And, and part of it is driven out of my my own junk as a kid. My parents divorced. They didn't really talk about their conflict. It led to divorce. I didn't want to divorce the so Sue. We had to talk about everything right now. So when you're hurt, let's talk about it now. Like I'd literally walk around the house. Sue, what are you doing? Come on, we got to talk about it. Sue. What are you? And, and you might have experienced this maybe with your spouse. And you're like, just leave me alone, right? We had to learn to compromise where we respect and love one another, she needs time to cool down. She needs time to think through this. We both need to go to Jesus and deal with this separately first. And then she needed to give where she needed to love me. I needed to love her and give her time. She needed to love me and say, hey, we're going to come back at this point. Scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So we about 24-hour period of time. We need to sit down and we need to discuss this. But I needed her to give me a time so I'm not fearful. Like this is going to be the one that leads to the divorce. And it all came from my stuff, but this is a way that she could love me, and even in the midst of her hurt. 
Ah, oh, I got to be done. All right, let me give you some homework, and uh, you guys will be on your way. Let me give you some homework. It's in, your, it's in your notes. What are you tempted to defend, and why? What are you tempted to defend, and why? And then take that stuff to the Lord and crucify it. Second thing, are there any logs in your eyes that you need to address and quit focusing on the sawdust speck in the other person's eye? Is there any log in your own eyes that you need to address? I'm just going to tell you, if you're not sure, just ask your spouse. <laughs> yep. And is there anything, third and last there, is there anything you're holding on to that you are choosing not to forgive? And what will it take for you to actually obey Jesus and forgive them? Is there anything you're holding on to and you're not forgiving? I want you to take that up with Jesus and give him all your reasons and excuses and let him remind you none of them work. And then choose to walk through forgiveness. See, when you're reminded of the good news, it compels me to then love you and be an ambassador of that love to where I'm going to seek to understand, enter into my spouse's pain. I'm going to work through forgiveness so that it will lead, Lord willing. It takes two, takes two, towards reconciliation. Hey, listen to me. I know this is hard. Really, 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 really hard. And so after the service, we're going to have some prayer partners down here. If you want prayer, please come down and have them pray. And just so you know, next week, we're going to talk about sex. I know you're going to that song, sex, baby. <laughs> but here's the deal. Uh, it's going to be great. My wife's going to actually be out of town, so I am free to say whatever I, whatever. Just kidding, Sue. Uh, but we are talking about this. So just so you know, it's an adult service. I will be being very frank about it. So I, w I want you to know that if you need to make sure your kids are not in here, that's up to you. But I don't want to get emails afterwards, okay? And then the last week, Mother's Day, I'm actually going to have Sue up here uh, with me. And we're going to talk about what does it take to have a long-lasting marriage. So I hope that you'll be back for the next two weeks. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your incredible word and how you give us unbelievable guidance and wisdom. Even Proverbs 18 says, a fool does not seek to understand. God, I pray that we would no longer be fools in our marriages, in our relationships. Like we would seek to understand and guidance and wisdom and discretion and kindness and love, that your love compelled us. I pray that we would be loving and gracious to the people around us. God, I pray for healing because oftentimes we need it personally so that we can offer it to those around us. And so God, thank you. I just thank you for your good news. And I pray your gospel that's changed my life would continue to keep compelling me to drive my actions in the relationships that I'm in and that this would be a church that is known for being driven out of your love for us, that we would offer it beautifully and regularly to every single person that comes through these doors. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.